All right, well, girls, I'm gonna give you all a, I'm gonna give you all a free dating advice right here, free free tip. Um, and there's and there's three words that, uh, and guys, just you're welcome for this. There's three words that uh, girls you you never ever 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 want to bring up uh, early on in a dating relationship. All right, it's the L word. It's the M word, and it's the C word. Now, I know it's rumored, like among you girls, that when us guys get together, man night, dude night, when we're just kicking it, hanging out, that, uh, that you know, there's really nothing that's off the table for us to talk about. I mean, there's nothing too weird, nothing too gross, nothing too, too crude or scary for us to talk about. That's, that's false on two accounts. Uh, one, uh, and guys, back me up on this, when we're together, we really don't talk a whole lot. Uh, we're usually like shooting stuff, breaking stuff, or lighting things on fire. Um, and if we're not doing that, and we are talking in one of those few moments, uh, these three words never make it into the conversation. Now, I'm going to try and make a Harry Potter reference here. Um, but it's kind of like, uh, like Lord Vol- Voldemort, he who should remain unnamed. Isn't that, isn't that right? The only reason I know that, I saw it, some Dwight on the office made reference to it, so that's the only reason I know. Uh, but yeah, so these three words, they're the three words that should remain unnamed. I mean, they're, they're just three words that guys don't talk about. Now, I'll let you figure out what the L word and the M word is. I'm going to go ahead and say what the C word is. Guys, you might want to close your ears. It's the, it's the word commitment. Uh, this word commitment freaks guys out. And um, when guys freak out, I mean, here's the thing. Like, like in a relationship, when, when, when guys get to that point where you're getting kind of to the commitment zone or the commitment, you know, season of a relationship and the guy realizes, oh, dang, I'm in the commitment zone. It's, it's that point where you're deciding, okay, are we dating? Are we not? Uh, and, and I hate this one, but are you, are, you know, are we going to update our Facebook status or are we going to leave it how it is? That, like that point. Uh, yeah, that's, that's when the guy freaks out. When guys freak out, uh, guys do really stupid things. And I'm going to use my roommate from college uh, for a perfect example on this. His name's Chad. I, I, I've talked about him before. Uh, he's perfect for stories because he did a lot of dumb things in school. But he, uh, he was dating, uh, this was our sophomore year, he was dating a, a, another friend of mine named Lindsay. And I uh, hope they never hear this. But they... Uh, yeah, so, so they went to hang out one night. I knew they were hanging out. They, and, and let me back up. I said they were dating. They really weren't dating. They were in that nebulous phase where they're kind of hanging out a lot but, but not dating. And uh, they were hanging out one night. I knew that Chad had been hanging out with Lindsay. And so I was hanging out in the dorm room. And, and pretty late that night, Chad comes in. And as soon as he comes in, I could see it in his face. Something was really, really wrong. So I said, Chad, bro, what's up? And he said, man, something bad happened tonight. And, and so I was like, well, tell me about it. And uh, he said, well, me and Lindsay were hanging out. And we had, we had pulled up to the dorm, she was driving, and they were sitting in the driving, or the, the parking lot to the dorm, and they started to talk, which is never good, and, uh, and so then Lindsay kind of moved into the conversation of, so, you know, like, what are we, what are we doing, and, and I said, oh, dang, Chad, what'd you do, and he goes, well, I freaked out, and I said, well, obviously, but what'd you do after you freaked out, and he said, well, and, and just so you know, like, guys, when they freak out, they immediately go to their comfort zone, and uh, for a lot of guys, that's sports, so he goes, well, I told her an, 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 an analogy, and I was like, oh, gosh, this is not going to be good, uh, so he says, uh, he says, so, so Lindsay said, uh, so, you know, where's this going? And Chad goes, well, Lindsay, it's like a football game. Um, he said, uh, you know, we've been, we've been, we're on offense. We've been marching down the field. You know, I've had the ball some. You've had the ball some. We've scored or we've gotten some first downs, you know, first down here, first down there. You know, it's good. The crowd's getting into it. You know, it's, you know, exciting. And, uh, and he said, you know, we've even crossed midfield. Like we're in the other team's territory now. You know, 30, 40-yard line, field goal range, long field goal, but field goal range. And he says, he says, but Lindsay, here's what you need to know. Like, we're never going to score a touchdown. Uh, and, uh, and, and so Chad's telling me this. I'm like, you said what to this girl? And he's like, I know. What else was I supposed to say? I was like, I, was like, I don't know. But I, dude, that's awesome. I wish I had thought of that analogy. That was a great analogy. Brilliant. Uh, but when guys, that wasn't a good analogy. I'm kidding. Uh, when guys get into the commitment zone, they freak out and they do stupid things because they got commitment issues. 
But girls, like y'all are, y'all are not going to be left out of this either. Like y'all have some of the same issues. Girls, y'all have some of y'all, probably a lot of y'all have commitment issues as well. Um, I remember uh, when I was in junior high, this girl named Stacy Garrett, blonde hair, braces. Mm, she was really cute. And uh, we, uh, we had our junior high spring and fall, or fall and spring, we had, uh, we had the, the, the fall ball and the spring fling, you know, the little cheesy junior high dances that they throw together at the local rec center. Uh, we had those, and I don't remember which one this was, but you know how, you know how junior, I don't know if you had junior high dances, we did, but, but uh, you know how junior high dances are, you know, the first hour is extremely, extremely awkward, uh, because all the guys are on one side, all the girls on the other, and until the DJ plays, for us it was a song, uh, Come On Ride the Train, and ride it, and everybody gets in line, starts dancing around, and after he starts that one, uh, then everybody kind of gets in the middle and starts dancing, it loosens everybody up, but until that, it's just awkward, everybody's on their own side. But then, you know, after a while, people start dancing together, right? And then, you know, the, the, the crucial moment is uh, the DJ knowing when it's right to play the first slow romantic song. And the romantic songs at junior high dances are like either totally awesome or completely terrible, uh, depending on whether or not you have a girl that you can dance with. And so, like, for the ones it was awesome for, you know, they went and danced with the girl. For the ones it was terrible for, the girls, y'all would go stand off on the side and be with your little girlfriends talking, act like you don't care. Uh, hoping, though, the whole time that some guy would come over and say, hey, dance with me. Um, and, but us guys, uh, totally different. We would actually just go and get a drink from the water fountain. Or we'd, uh, at the rec center, we did the, the, the dances at the rec center, so they always had the, the, the fruit punch over by the weight room, so we'd just go stand by the weight room and talk about, uh, you know, manly. Well, we're junior high kids, so. Um, but, yeah, so, but, but, okay, so the romantic song thing. Like, at the end of the night, they always play, and they tell you, okay, this is the last, this is the last dance. This is the last slow song. And, uh, and it doesn't matter if they've been awesome or terrible up to this point. Like, everybody dances to this last slow song. So if you haven't danced with a chick yet, like, you've got to find one fast because you can't miss this last dance. So I remember, I don't remember if it was spring fling or fall ball, whatever it was, but um, junior high, I was, it was the last dance. And, uh, and so I'm totally fessing up to some stuff here. This is bad. I, I, I didn't have anybody to dance with. And so I'm walking around the gym. And, uh, and it, you know, just looking. I didn't know, though, this whole time this girl, Stacy Garrett, was looking, too, you know, kind of scoping it out, seeing if anybody was going to, you know, make eye contact and want to, you know, do the whole dance thing. But I'm walking around. She's walking around. And then all of a sudden it was like kind of like a scene out of a movie. Like right in the middle of the dance floor, the gym, our eyes, like, make contact. And it was almost like, you know, God parting the Red Sea. The people just split and you know how in movies where all of a sudden the lights get really dramatic, you know, and the disco ball, that one disco ball hanging way high up in this gym ceiling is spinning, and it's like, oh, this is romantic. And, uh, and then the music, it kind of, you know, picks up, gets a little higher, and then it's like everybody just disappears. And it's that moment where it's like you lock eyes, and then you start that dramatic walk, you know. And then we get up, and then two-foot rule, you know, because junior high, you got to be two feet apart when you're dancing. And, uh, and so, then, you know, we dance to this song. And, and after this song, I had this huge crush on this girl, Stacy Garrett. So we had a couple classes together, and, and after, you know, you know, we got back into school and everything, um, I asked her, you know, in junior high, whatever it means, I asked her out a couple times. I was like, would you be my girlfriend? And, and like three or four times, she totally turned me down. But finally, like the, the fourth or fifth time, I got her to say yes. And, uh, but uh, we only dated for like two or three days, and then she, uh, she dumped me again. So like girls have commitment issues as well. Um, Guys and girls have commitment issues. Commitment issues. Um, we, all, we all have them in some form or fashion. And, and what we're going to see tonight is that this whole idea of commitment issues, it's threaded throughout this whole text that we're looking at. James chapter 1, we're, we're continuing our study in James. And 
And tonight, uh, last, last week we looked at verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. Tonight we pick up with verse 2. But let me just kind of read from verse 1 into verse 2, okay? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. James introduces the letter. And then verse 2, he says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. So quick recap of last week. Remember where this letter comes out of. Remember where this letter finds its roots, okay? Acts chapter 2 is really where the beginning of this, or where this letter begins to find its roots. Acts chapter 2, if you were to go back there, you see this massive movement of God begin to take place. This Christian movement erupts in Jerusalem, and all these people begin to respond to the gospel. Now fast way forward to chapter 7, thousands upon thousands of people have responded to the gospel. In chapter 7, what you see happen is this dude named Stephen, who was one of the pillars in the church, one of the leaders, he gets arrested, put before the court, and eventually he gets killed. And as soon as he's killed, we see in chapter 8, verse 1, we see, uh, we see this great persecution bust out against the church. All the believers are being persecuted. And what happens in chapter, one, or chapter 8, verse 1, when this persecution hits? I mean, the believers, they scatter. They go running for the hills, except for a very select few group of people. The apostles, uh, which were some, you know, close guys to Jesus, uh, before he left, and then a couple other guys, one of them being James. So everybody else leaves except for just a few guys who stand firm there in Jerusalem. And that's really where this letter comes out of. And so they, the, the rest of the church scatters, and James now, there's been a period from the scattering to the time of him writing this letter, James now is writing this letter to all these believers, because he's James is kind of the leader in the church, and he writes this letter basically to ask or to do this, to question the authenticity of their faith, by confronting some really big, obvious issues that had popped up among the believers, and then urging them and challenging them to change. And so this whole letter, what we're going to see from here forward, is him addressing some of these big issues. And so chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you, <clears throat> whenever you face trials of many kinds. What he does right off the bat is he goes, okay, let's just do this. I mean, he licks his pen, starts writing, and he says, let's just go straight to it. Let's just... Let's just address the massively huge, oversized, hairy elephant that's standing right in the middle of this room. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't take any time to slowly work his way into the tough stuff. He doesn't slowly break it in. He just goes right at it. He says, let's talk about trials. And that's the very thing. These trials was the very thing that caused the church to scatter. And we saw last week uh, that when, when these trials came on the church, these trials kind of did a couple things. One in particular is... For all the believers, these thousands of people, it, it, first it weeded out you know, all, the, all the wolves and all the fakers, the people who were not really Christians but kind of going under the guise of Christianity. But then it also it forced these weaklings, these, these immature, these weak believers to step it up, to kick it up a notch, start bringing their A games to their B or C game. And so he's writing this letter to them, and he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And what he says here, when he says trials of many kinds... He really makes reference to, to anything that threatens or questions one's faithfulness to God. And so that could be illness, um, that, could be, uh, that could be financial struggle, or financial strain, that could be a death in the family. And that, that can all be included in what he says here when he says trials of many kinds. But I think, and when you understand the context in which James is writing, I think when he says trials, he means trials that come from actively pursuing Christ. And so the difference is, some of these trials can happen while you're just chilling at home, sitting on your couch. You can get sick. Um, or you're chilling at home on your couch, you get a call, and somebody in your family died. Those are trials that you can go through, but those don't really come necessarily from actively pursuing God. I think he's talking about the trials that come from you are living out your faith, and you're actively pursuing God, and then stuff happens as a result of it. And it's important for us to see that because 
that really shapes the way we understand the rest of what he says in these first uh, 11 or 12 verses. So he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Or he says, because you know that the testing of your faith develops endurance. If you've ever played sports before, you know that it's really hard to consistently win uh, games unless you have some level of endurance. Different sports require different types of endurance, different levels of endurance. But you have to have some sort of physical endurance and even mental endurance to win, to win games, no matter what sport it is, okay? Um, I, I played a year of college basketball. I'm really glad it was only a year or two for a lot of reasons. But I played a year of college basketball at this podunk school in Arkansas. And um, my coach, he was, he was totally convinced that if we ever lost a game, it was for one of two reasons. Either we were physically weak or we were mentally uh, weak. And so when we lost a game, that's what he always aimed to fix. He didn't worry about really watching film a whole lot. He always aimed to fix our weakness. A perfect example. We were playing in a tournament out in, I think it's that way, in West Texas, at West Texas A&M, Canyon, Texas, which is really close to where I just moved from. It's near Lubbock. And uh, Thanksgiving tournament, we played two games. We lost one, we won, uh, we won one. And, uh, yeah, well, first of all, just... I don't know why I just thought of this, but that was my first game to ever play in, in, a, in my move. This was like my move. This is a scouting report on Austin Wadlow. Okay, if I get the ball at the top of the key, like I'm going to give it a look, give it a little eye fake, and I'm either going to go right or left. If I go right, I'm taking it all the way to the hole, so just get ready for it. If I go left, I'm going to take one or two dribbles, pull up for a jump shot. And when I got the ball, the first time I touched the ball, I had a, you know, it was that shot. I was right up at the top of the key, give him a little fake going right, eye fake, go around left, one dribble, pulled up. Oh, man, it was perfect, wide open, and I, like, missed it by about a foot. didn't hit anything. But we played horrible. We played absolutely horrible. And our our coach, when we lost, was not very happy. So uh, the night after the game that we lost, uh, we drove all the way from Canyon back to Podunk, Arkadelphia, Arkansas, about a 10-hour drive. We got back in Arkansas uh, on campus about 3.30, 3.40 in the morning on a Sunday morning. And normally when we get back to campus, coach would uh, just, we'd just get out of the, uh, the bus and we'd go down, put our stuff up in the locker, and we'd go home. Well, in this particular morning, uh, we get back uh, Sunday morning, 3.30, 3.40, and he tells us to wait on the bus. And, uh, and so we wait on the bus, and about five minutes later, one of the coaches comes back, and he says, all right, y'all go down in the locker room. So we go down in the locker room, we knew something was up, and we get down there, and all of our practice jerseys are pulled out, they're hanging up in our lockers. Our shoes and our socks are pulled out, sitting on the uh, you know, little bench there. And there's a, there's a nice little note on the dryer support that says, meet me on the court at 5. And, uh, and so this is like almost 4 a.m. now. And, and so at 4 a.m., we go upstairs <clears throat> to the gym. The lights are on. Coach is up there, and he's in his you know, fatigues, and he's ready with his whistle. And from 4 a.m. until 8 a.m., we just do nothing but running and sprints. And, I mean, he's yelling at us physically, physical endurance, mental endurance. It was horrible, absolutely horrible. Horrible. 8 a.m. He blows his whistle and he says, y'all go to church. And we're like, yeah, right. Bedside Baptist is what I'm going to today. But, um, so we would, we would ask like, ourselves constantly throughout the year, because this wasn't the only time things like this happened. We constantly asked ourselves, why do we subject ourselves to this kind of horrible torture? It's horrible. But by the end of the season, we'd had one of the best seasons that that school had seen out of their basketball program in years. And the reason was because physically, We were strong. Mentally, we were strong. We had built up this endurance physically and mentally. Now, last night, I went down to uh, LA Fitness to, you know, get my workout on, did a little weights, and I was going to run on the treadmill, but it was packed in there. You know, it's January, so everybody's still got their resolutions going. So I found a a bike upstairs, and I start riding this bike. I only rode for like 10 minutes. I'm not in the shape I used to be in when I was in, in, in college, but I'm riding this bike, and as I'm looking around, 
I'm, you know, you're up, you're upstairs and you can see the whole weight room. And, and so I'm kind of people watching. And it's really fun to just see the dedication and the commitment of these different men and women who are going at it on these weights. Some aren't really going at it. They're just kind of sitting there. But it's funny, though, because as packed as it is right now, you know that come late February or late or late March, that place is going to empty out like really, really quick um, because these people's commitments to their New Year's resolution to get fit and get in shape, and those waver and those disappear like super fast. I read an article, though, uh, actually just last night. I found it last night, and it's, it's this online kind of news journal. Um, and they, they did this kind of funny study during the 2010 Vancouver Olympics. And the study was to find out uh, what were the laziest countries in the world. And... Uh, and let me just kind of read how they, how they introduced this study and why they did it. It was, kind of, it was kind of funny. They said, with the world's best athletes competing in Vancouver, it was going on during the Olympics, with the world's best athletes competing in Vancouver, the Daily Beast crunches the numbers to determine the most slothful nations of the planet. And they call it uh, Welcome to the uh, Couch Potato Olympics. So they're calling this study the Couch Potato Olympics. While a few hundred athletes skate, ski, and prance over the ice and slush over Vancouver each Olympic day, a few hundred million people sit on their... Uh, duffs, which means bottoms, apparently, uh, with beer and whatever the local version of Cheetos is and take it all in on television or online, which gave us an idea. Rather than give all the glory to the countries with the fittest and the fastest, why not an Olympic-style competition to determine the laziest country in the world? So they go on to give their four criteria for the study. And the four criteria were uh, calories per day, so caloric intake for that country, uh, and then hours of television watched per day, Aversion to sports, so people who don't like sports or, you know, they might watch sports. Yeah, we've got a couple people here for sure. Uh, we've got people who may watch sports, but they still have this aversion to actually participating in them. And then the fourth criteria was uh, amount of time spent on the Internet. So, do you know which country was named the laziest country in the world, according to this study? Yeah, baby, USA. We were named the Couch Potato Olympic Winners, except for the months of January, February, and March, the United States of America is the laziest country in the world. So that's what the, uh, that's what the article dubbed us, the, uh, the, the world champions or the, the, the Olympic winners for the couch potato competition. Physical couch potatoes. But I started thinking as I'm reading that. You know what would be worse than being dubbed or be actually being a physical or a couch potato physically speaking? You might see where I'm going with this. Be, be a spiritual couch potato. Be a spiritual couch potato. And in the American dream version of Christianity that we are surrounded by, it is plagued. We, this American dream version of Christianity is plagued with spiritual couch potatoes. Now, I want to be really cautious in what I'm about to say. And I want you to know that everything I say from up here is said out of love in my heart. Just like some of the things that James says up in this letter, they're, they're harsh, they're right to the point, it's kind of intense. He's confronting some big, obvious issues. But he says it out of love in his heart. And I also want you to know that everything I say from here is out of what God is really doing in my heart. Um, things that he's doing inside of me. And, and so, let me say this. I think it's probably safe to say that many, if not most, of us in this room, and I, I kind of lean towards the most of us or most, if not all of us, side of that equation, but many, if not most of us in this room are spiritual couch potatoes. Or I'd even call it Christian couch potatoes. And if we're not careful, 
we're going to die of heart disease caused by what we're going to call spiritual obesity or Christian obesity. And here's what I mean when I say that. We fill ourselves up and we fill ourselves up and we fill and we fill and we fill and we fill ourselves up with God's word, which is good. We have to have God's word. You have to hear me say that first. We have to have this. This is absolutely important. It's, I mean, just as much as we need food to live, we need this. Just as much as we need water to live, we need this. We've got to have God's word. But we fill ourselves and we fill ourselves and we fill ourselves and we fill ourselves, but we never work it out. And so we get fat with this knowledge without getting fit in our faith. And so the question I feel like we've got to ask at this point is, okay, so how? How do we work it out? I mean, if, if by chance, maybe, some of us are uh, spiritual couch potatoes and, um, and we're, we're, we're not far off maybe from heart failure because of spiritual obesity, then how do we work it out? And James answered that question in verse 4 when he says, Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. It says, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, the NIV does an absolutely terrible job of translating this verse because it leaves out a word that is very important. And some of your translations have it. It's the word let. So probably a better, uh, probably a better way to translate this verse would be to say let perseverance or let endurance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete or let endurance have its full effect on you so that you may be mature and complete. Now, remember who James is talking to. He's talking to the people who were scattered among the nations. James, the servant of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Now, these are folks who had, I mean, at the first sign of trouble, the first sign of trial in Acts 8, chapter 1, or Acts chapter 8, verse 1, I mean, they scattered, they ran. <clears throat> and so James here, what he's saying is you can't do that. He's saying, if, man, if you want to grow stronger in your faith, if you want to, if you want to become more mature in your faith, in your relationship with Christ, and you can't, you can't do that. You can't run. You need to stand firm. You need to let it happen. You need to allow it to happen. Some of, your, uh, some of your Bible's translations may say, allow it to happen. James says, this is what leads to our maturity as believers. Now, we're taught, and it's crammed down our throats, that the more consistent we become in our quiet time, that's what leads to maturity. And when I say quiet time, what I mean is, you know, the, the, the cliche version of studying the Bible, 10 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes in the morning, whatever. So the more, you know, we're taught, the more consistent we become in our quiet time, doing it every day, every morning, that's what leads to maturity. Now don't hear me in saying that reading God's word doesn't lead to maturity. We have to eat this. We have to, not literally eat it, but we have to read it. We have to love this. We have to soak it up. We have to immerse ourselves in this. So yes, spending time in the word, quiet time, however you want to call it, that's huge, that's important, and it does assist our journey to maturity. But this passage here that James, and what James says in verse 4, he, he, it challenges that idea that it's the quiet time that leads to the maturity. Because what he's saying here is, this passage teaches that maturity comes from letting our faith be tested. There's a statistic out there that says 85% of all the churches in America are either plateauing in their attendance or declining. And on their way to essentially dying. Now, it says that's over 340,000 churches. I feel like the number would probably be bigger if it was 85%, but that's the number they give. Um, so 85% of churches in America have plateaued or are declining in attendance. So the question I ask when I hear that statistic is why? Why are so many churches plateauing in their attendance, people showing up, uh, or, or declining? 
And I, I'm, I'm not really one to make a blanket statement. I don't want to make a blanket statement uh, that, that doesn't have anything, you know, any meat behind it. And I'm cautious in making a blanket statement, especially when it involves 340,000 plus churches. Because when you look at the, the, the question we're asking here, why are these 340,000 churches declining or plateauing? I mean, there's, in theory, 340,000 different reasons. Um, but I think when you look at the reasons, which is probably a lot of similar ones between these churches, of why they're declining or plateauing, I think if you begin to look at them, you begin to see that so many of them come back to the same thing or are rooted in the same thing, and that is immaturity in our churches. The grown men, they're immature. And if the grown men are immature, are immature the young who are going to be immature? The young men. The grown women, they're immature. And if they're immature, who's going to be immature unto them? The young women. So maybe it's immaturity in our churches. So the question then I have is why? Why, why is there so much immaturity in our churches? And I'll just go and tell you this. I don't think it's because people aren't getting fed or filled with the word. Uh, 340,000 churches means there's, there's, among those churches, there are thousands, literally, of great preachers. People who are great at exposing God's word. And in those churches, great Bible study teachers, great life group leaders, Sunday school leaders, whatever your church calls it to try and be cool, home group, home group leaders. There's great Bible study teachers, leaders, etc. But even if they don't have the good pastor or don't have the good Bible study teacher, they still have tons of good books that do an incredible job of exposing God's Word. But even if they can't read, they still have access to podcasts of all these great preachers and TV and all this stuff. Well, not TV. Scratch that. Bad preachers on TV. Podcasts with all these great preachers from all over the world, some of the best in the world. So I don't think it has anything to do with them not, not getting filled with the Word. What I think it is is it's because we've reached a level of comfort. And so we've structured our programs, we've structured our events, we've structured our ministries to cater to this comfort, to add to this comfort, and to protect this comfort. And so maybe the reason that these churches are plateauing and declining, and which will be the same reason that this ministry here will plateau and, and potentially even decline, is because we don't allow ourselves to be tested. We don't allow our faith to be tested. We run, we scatter, we hide, lock ourselves in our closets of comfort. Instead of standing strong in Christ and saying, man, bring it. What James says here is maturity comes from letting our faith be tested. We've replaced growing in our faith with growing in knowledge. You can't do that. You want to know one quick way to know if you're immature in your faith? And before I say what this is, I want to explain this. There's two different types of immaturity. There's natural immaturity and there's unnatural immaturity, okay? Natural immaturity is you, uh, you're just young. I mean, you, you, you became a Christian today, or, you, you know, you're, you put your faith in Christ two weeks ago, or even a year ago. You're, you're still young, and, and so natural immaturity means that over time, that immaturity, I mean, will naturally go away, but right now, where you are, that's natural. That's okay, but there's another kind, and that's unnatural immaturity, and that is you're like 10 years old in your faith, and, and yet you still look, look like you're one years old in your faith. Or you're 15 years old and you look like you're one day old in your faith. That's unnatural maturity. So if you want to know a quick way of, of, of seeing whether or not you're mature in your faith, it's this right here. You go to church. You go to a Bible study. Or you come to Overflow. Or maybe you go to all three. But you're not serving. You're not going. When I say going, I mean missions. Not necessarily international, but that's included. But I mean just reaching people here within a mile radius here in this community. So you're not... You're not, you're not serving, you're not going, you're not giving, you're not sacrificing, and you're not committing. Quick way to see if you're immature as a believer. You're involved in the church, kind of a spectator, observer, but you're not participating, you're not 
going beyond that. So James, he goes on, uh, verse 5, he goes on to give two visual images of the type of person who is really unable to commit. He, he basically describes the poster child of commitment issues, okay? Verse 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Now, just to explain this verse very quickly, there's, there's a good promise there, there's a good challenge there. In verse 4, he says, Perseverance must finish its work so that you don't lack anything. And then he says, okay, for example, if you lack wisdom. So he's just giving an example here. You could plug in other things there other than just wisdom. So he says, if you lack wisdom or anything, ask God, and he'll give it to you without finding fault. Now, you've got to read that in context of other scripture. Good promise, though. Moving on. Verse 6. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all that he does. James introduces this concept of being double-minded. A more literal translation here would be double-souled. Okay, uh, Deuteronomy 6.5, God says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Hebrews 6, 18 through 19, the beginning uh, part of verse 19, says this, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. Verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for our souls, firm and secure. Now there's a stark difference here between these two verses I just read and the pictures they create in a person and this picture that James is creating here in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Huge difference. The person James describes over here is this double-minded, double-souled uh, person with this, this soul that has no anchor, a soul that has no anchor. Therefore, the external circumstances or the external conditions really are what direct where they go, just like a, wind or a wave out in the sea. When the storm brews up and there's this tropical storm that comes through, man, that wave is just going to go wherever the wind takes it. I mean, this person doesn't have, like, one central focus. Their soul has no anchor. So then he goes on. He says, perfect example, verse 9. Perfect example of this double-minded guy. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position. Now, he makes a distinguishing, a, a distinguishing point here. He says, the brother in humble circumstances versus the one who's rich. So basically what he's saying is, look, if you are poor, then you don't really have to worry about this example that I'm giving you here. So praise God for that. And then verse 10 he says, But for those who are rich, the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. So first he says, All you poor folks, don't really have to worry about this, but praise God for that. And then he says, But take the rich man who puts all or even just some of his hope in his wealth. That is a double-minded, double-souled dude that is unable to commit and una unable to persevere. His soul has no anchor. It's pulled in too many directions. It's only pulled here in this picture in two directions, but two directions is one too many. One direction, one mind, one soul is what James is pushing here. And then he goes further and says, look, just for the record, I mean, just for this picture with this rich guy, so he's... He's got his wealth, pulled him in different directions. He says the, the funny thing or the sad thing is he's putting his help, hope over here in this wealth that's going to fade away and wither up anyways. When I was out in Lubbock, which is pretty much the desert, and sun is pretty harsh, wind is pretty harsh, and there's not a lot of rain, 
um, I, was, uh, I was asked by one of my neighbors who actually were also the, uh, the worship leaders for the ministry we were part of. So Matt, don't ever ask me to do this, man. Uh, they asked me when they were out of town to water their, uh, their plants. Now, really wasn't a big deal, okay? Like three tomato plants is all they had. And they said, hey, will you water these three tomato plants while we're gone for the week? And so I was like, sure. I totally forgot. And so when they get home, these three tomato plants had completely withered and died. Um, but a few weeks later, they went out of town again, and they had the courage uh, to, to ask me again to water their plants. And so I was convinced this time I was not going to mess up. In fact, I was convinced this time that when they came back, their tomato plants were going to be huge and going to be awesome and have these massively huge uh, red scrumptious potatoes on them. Or t- not potatoes. How about tomatoes? I don't know. Potatoes, cool. That's awesome. Um, they mutated since the time that they, uh, they left. But, uh, yeah, I was convinced that they were going to be, like, in even better shape, okay? And so what I thought I should do then is just water them more than what they asked. And so... Uh, I did that, and I had no idea. I had no idea there was this concept of overwatering plants. And so, not only were they, uh, well, not only were they wilted when they got back, but they were like completely wiped out that time when they got back. But so this guy is saying, James is saying about the rich dude, he's saying, "Look, your wealth that you're putting your hope in, it's going to wither away, just like those tomato plants. It will wither away." And he's saying this rich guy is a perfect example of this double-minded man with commitment issues. Now, there's, there's two really big truths I want you to walk away with tonight. And the first, the first one is this. You and I must go through trials in order to grow in our faith. We must go through trials in order to grow in our faith. James challenges these believers saying, you ran away, but you've got to stop running away. He's writing to those who had scattered. He's saying, you can't do that anymore. And as he writes this, chances are where they are now, they're already facing more trials. And he's saying, look, you can't run away from those trials too. And we must go through trials in order to grow. So my challenge to you tonight first is this, stop running. We've got to stop hiding in our comfortable little closets. We've got to break free of that. We've got to step out in faith and we've got to see what happens. James says perseverance must, underline must, if you've got a different version that uses the word let, underline let. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. You dig in there a little deeper, and it's, I, I think it's cool. We won't deal with it much, but mature and complete. Even more little tra- literal translation of those two words will be spotless and blameless. Which if you go back to the Old Testament, you know what that reminds you, me of? It reminds me of all the sacrifices that God had the people bring to the altar, bring the spotless and the blameless lamb, mature and complete. That's what it's saying right there. Perseverance must finish its work. Let it happen so that you can be mature and complete, spotless and blameless. There's one more big truth, and it's in verse 12. James says this, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to all those who love him. And what he means when he says stood the test is he's basically saying these, these people have been approved or when he has been approved or when he's been proven trustworthy or reliable or genuine, when their faith has been proven trustworthy, reliable, or genuine. And the reason James deals with this issue of genuine faith uh, and, and, uh, and reliable faith first is because these trials, these things that question our faith, they reveal the trustworthiness or the genuineness of our faith. And this is what the second big truth comes out of. Big truth number two is this. Genuine faith perseveres. Genuine faith, it endures. And genuine faith, C word, commits. 
And there's two ways that you need to be encouraged by this and by what James says. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to probably say them backwards as far as how important they are. I'm going to say the really important one first instead of saving the best for last. But he says, in verse 12, he says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. The crown of life. Like, that's awesome, first of all. That's, that, that we need to be encouraged by that. When we think of the, the crown or a crown, we think of something with jewels in it that king probably wears, right? Uh, but when you consider the, the references that James has already made to endurance, and he's, he's probably carrying a similar concept here of what Paul does when he talks about or relates sports. I like Paul. He relates sports to God's word, and that's cool, or sports to spiritual things. But likely this reference is not to like a king's crown, but like to an athlete's crown. Um, and, and back then, back in the day, uh, when athletes would win a race or they'd win a competition, they would be awarded this wreath, kind of like a horse's today. You know, when they, when they win the race, they stick that big old wreath on the horse's neck. Same thing. Athletes, they'd get a wreath, so they treat them like horses back then. But they got these wreaths that were very valuable to them, and it was a big deal. Uh, Revelation 2.10 says this, Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison and, and, and te- uh, to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you the crown of life. Again, crown of life. Genuine faith, it perseveres. Genuine faith endures. And genuine faith commits. And genuine faith is the only thing that's worthy of this crown of life. Eternal life. That's the first thing we've got to be encouraged by here. The second is this. You go all the way back to the beginning of this passage. Verse 2. He says, consider it pure joy. He starts this whole thing about persecution and trials off with saying this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kind. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, man, you and I miss out on all the fun and all the joy of following the Lord until we allow our faith to be tested and tried. And when we stop, when we stop running from trials and hiding in our comfortable closets, that's when it finally gets fun. That's when we begin to experience God and experience this true, true joy. When we finally take a risk, that's when we gain joy. And I don't know about you, but I'm ready to have some fun. Boring Christianity, it's like so yesterday, so I'm ready to step out in faith. James, James basically says this. He says, stop being flaky. Stop hiding from the reality that as a believer who is actively living out your faith, you will face trials. And so he says, commit. That's in all caps in my notes, by the way. Commit. Because when you face those trials, that's when you mature. And do you remember, uh, we talked about this last week, do you remember why it was so important for James to question the authenticity of these people's faith, addressing and confronting some of these big issues and then challenging them to change? You remember what the reason was? It's because it's because he's writing to those who had been scattered among what? The nations. Thank you for two of you saying that. He's writing to those who had been scattered among the nations. These people literally had the nations at their fingertips. And if they would just change, the impact they could have was huge. And if they would change, if they would, if they would live out their faith, then this Christian movement wouldn't plateau and wouldn't decline, but instead would explode and erupt. And I said this last week, and I'm going to say it again, and I'll probably say it a lot more. 
We literally have the nations at our fingertips. I mean, like, right there. We have the nations at our fingertips. And it is my prayer that this Christian movement among college students here in Denton explodes. I hope that's your prayer as well. But what we have to understand is this. First, before that happens, we have got to break free of our fear of having our faith tested and tried. Before any of that happens, we've got to break free of our fear of the C word. And we need to begin to actively live out what is genuine faith. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word. And I'm really thankful for this letter that that James writes and, and just how... I don't know, I feel like there's a lot of similarities in, in what those people were dealing with and what, uh, I don't know, maybe what we're dealing with now. And um, I just thank you for the way that uh, you 